Hi, I'm Jacqueline. And I'm Courtney. And this is Caffeinated Crimes. So we are recording a little bit differently today. Um, We typically record on Sunday mornings, and as of right now, it is about 9 o'clock on Saturday night. So So instead of drinking my usual coffee, I have a margarita that's literally the size of my head. Yes, I'm looking at Courtney right now, literally the size of her head. Like Here's a little, what is it, ASMR for you? Um, you know, like those, uh, like like the size of a trash can that you would have in your bathroom. That's what Courtney's drinking out of right now. What it really reminds me of is like when you go and get Chinese food and you get soup and they bring you that like huge thing of soup. It's like that, but just margarita, straight margarita. Yep. So we'll see how this goes. Maybe this will be a new thing, um, or maybe it'll be really bad and we'll never do it ever again. So yeah, maybe this version won't ever be released and we'll have to re-record it. (laughs) That's true. That's true. So we'll see what happens with that. Um, We are still here in quarantine. Maybe one of these days, since we record a couple of weeks ahead of time, by the time you get an episode that says we're in quarantine, we won't be in quarantine anymore. And that will be super exciting. If that ever happens, I think we're going to be in quarantine forever. But I mean, where I live, they are opening stuff back up. Mm -hmm. But you girls staying home. Yes, I ain't about that Rona life. <laughs> so, no. and I'm in Virginia where restrictions are getting worse. Like today, when I tried to go to Starbucks at two o'clock, and they close it at one o'clock on the weekends. So it's a travesty. Yes, it was rough. And my birthday was this week, and I got one hundred dollars in Starbucks gift cards, and I can't use them right now. <laughs> it's very sad. Some of that was also from me because I was just like. What can she get? I I don't know. Anything from Amazon is going to take four weeks. I can't get her tickets to anything because nothing's probably ever going to happen ever again. Yeah, and so we're just kind of doing the we're same. We're beep-bopping along. Beep-bopping along. Yep, yep. So, so we hope you guys are also beep-bopping along and hope that you are doing okay and finding ways to keep yourself busy. Um Speaking of keeping busy, our mutual friend Tiffany sent me a super cool birthday present. Um, So she got a paint by numbers, like canvas made of my three animals. So that's going to be super fun. And it's funny because she actually ordered it before quarantine because I was like, oh, wow, like this is such a thoughtful like quarantine gift. And she's like, yeah, I got that like four months ago. So yeah. Yeah. yeah, she texted me. I think it was like back in January. She was like, do you think this is a good idea? I was like, totally. <laughs> so it just worked out perfectly. Yeah, so I'm excited. That should be that should be fun to, to play around with. Um, I'm still playing video games. I'm still doing my little paint by numbers. Um, my work's been cutting my hours, so I've had to try and fill my time, and it's not fun. Yeah. Not fun. Yeah. Don't that's... know what to do. Today was sunny, so I got to sit outside, so that was super nice. Yeah, Kevin and I went on a walk around our apartment. We've been trying to do that because he says I get too sad if I don't get sunlight. Yep. So, you know. It's like that meme that's like you're basically a houseplant with complicated emotions. It's true. Exactly. It's very true. Just need, you need the sun to make you grow. (laughs) Yes. Oh, Lord. And Courtney is about halfway through this trash can-sized margarita, guys. So. (laughs) This will be fun. I promise 
once we get to the sad story, I'll get more serious. But, you know, we're just all friends right now. We're just doing a little banter. We're just hanging out. Girls being girls. <laughs> so. <laughs> oh, boy. Who's editing this episode, Courtney? <laughs> I think it's your turn, actually. <laughs> oh, gosh. Because yes, I have to so. go back. And the last episode we recorded where I was 100% sober and messed up half my words. <laughs> so. <laughs> I mean. I was trying really hard to come up with a joke that used one of the incorrect words that you used, but I'm just not quite that quick, so. But I did say deadly fourth, so watch out, guys, because May 4th is coming, it's real deadly, apparently. <laughs> the deadly fourth is coming for. I don't know, I, w- I don't want to jinx that with everything going on in the world. <laughs> That's too oh. true. We need to, like release like unedited version of our podcast for like our patreons like one of the ones where it's not too bad like we don't mess up or say anything too awful but be like here you go enjoy if this you is... would like an unedited version and you're a patreon or want to become a patreon let us know because that's yes. something you want i mean it's pretty easy we just gotta export it <laughs> i'm just sending it your way and hope you don't hate us after that so <laughs> Um, speaking of Patreon, Courtney, so today's case, um, is actually a recommendation from one of our Patreon subscribers, Catherine. Um, so thank you, Catherine, for suggesting this case. It was super interesting. I'd actually never heard of it. Um, I don't know if you had. I hadn't either, no. Nope. Um, so it's, it's quite a case. Like, there's a lot of really interesting information that kind of led us down some deep dives that I was not expecting for this case, so... So this week we're going to cover Louise Woodward. Um, And so for our sources, there was an episode of American Justice called The Trial of Louise Woodward. Um, We used encyclopedia.com, a little article from there, um, an article from Closer Online, which it looks like it is a UK website. Yes. Um, An article from Mayo Clinic, um, an article from ABC News, an article from Fair Trials, an article from Wired, an article from New York Times, and an article from Newsweek. Again, we deep dived. <laughs> Again, we had our first like general source, and then there were just so many components of this case that it just kind of led us into a bunch of other things that we were not expecting. But so on February fourth, nineteen ninety seven, at three forty five p.m in Newton, Massachusetts, which is a suburb of Boston. Um, 18-year-old nanny Louise Woodward calls 911 to report that the eight-month-old infant in her care, Matthew Epen, is having trouble breathing. Um, She says that she went into his crib to wake him up from his nap and that he was turning blue and that he was, like, gasping for breath. Um, So she calls 911, paramedics come, they rush him to the hospital. Both of his parents um, are doctors, and so they meet them at the hospital And once they're here, they find that he has a two and a half inch skull fracture and massive brain bleeding. Um, So he goes into emergency surgery so they can relieve some of the pressure on the brain. um, And the doctors believe that this injury occurred within the last few hours. So Matthew does have retinal hemorrhaging in his eyes. um, So it's like bleeding like behind the eyeballs. Um, And the doctors say that this is a strong indication of shaken baby syndrome and that you rarely see this in infants other than cases of violent shaking. Um, And so they explain it as, like, basically as the baby is being shaken, that the eye is slamming back and forth, um, which results in the retina tearing. Um, Ouch. That just sounds horrible. I know. Like, when I, like, read that, I was like, oh, like, I feel sick to my stomach. Like, this is, this is painful. Um, 
And to get just a little bit into shaken baby syndrome, because obviously this is going to be a big part of this case, um, the Mayo Clinic defines shaken baby syndrome as a serious brain injury resulting from forcibly shaking an infant or a toddler. Um, so this destroys a child's brain cells and prevents their brain from getting enough oxygen. Um, so it's basically a form of child abuse that can result in permanent brain damage or death. Um, and nowadays, a lot of parent education classes talk about shaken baby syndrome and how to prevent it. So Dr. Norman Guttkelch, that sounds right. Um, <laughs> sorry, Dr. Norman, if that's not right. Um, first coined this term in the 1970s, which is now called the triad, um, which are three primary symptoms that pretty much any time they would see these symptoms in an infant, they would call it shaken baby syndrome. Um, and so those three were swelling of the brain, bleeding on the brain surface, and the bleeding behind the retinas, which we described Matthew has in this case. Yeah, and they also did say, I think on that Mayo Clinic website, is it could be as much as like one forcible shake that can start indicating shaken baby syndrome yes. also. Like so. it doesn't have to be like a prolonged, you know, like like you just pick up and just like shake this infant back and forth. It can be so much as like, I'm a new parent and I'm overwhelmed and you just won't stop crying and I just give you one forceful shake. Like that can be enough. Yeah. Um, so infants are very fragile. Yes. They have like, their skull isn't all put together. <laughs> There's like literally like a, like a spot on the brain, like on the head that can just self-destruct so just be careful with infants Courtney's technical term the brain's not all the head's not all put together and there's a self-destruct button so well because like basically when you're born sorry guys anthropologists coming in here so basically when you're born like you have more bones than you do as an adult because all your bones have to like merge together and that includes like in the skull like so when like the skull merges you get the little sutures but yeah, so basically, you know, like it has to form together and make the sutures and be together, but that doesn't happen right when they're born. So it is very fragile within there for the first couple of years. Yes. Yes. So police interviewed Louise at the Epen home um, and Louise said that Matthew had been fussy all day um, and that the police say that Louise said that she was a little rough with him earlier and that she dropped him on the bathroom floor. Um, police say that Louise told them that she found him blue in his crib and that she shook him a bit when she was trying to wake him up and then she put him on the floor and administered CPR and then called 911. Um, this police interview was not recorded. Um, again, it was done at the home. It was not done at a police station. She was not, you know, officially a suspect. She had not been arrested or Mirandized or given an opportunity to speak with a lawyer or anything. It was just like a, you know, hey, can you tell us what happened? Um, and in just my little notes here where she mentioned that Matthew had been fussy all day, in my mind, the first thing that went to was, well, has was he injured before? And that's why he was fussy. And not that an injury occurred because he was fussy, but maybe he had been fussy all day because of a previous injury. Um, so after the emergency surgery, Matthew is placed on life support, and on February 5th, Louise is arrested for assault and battery based on the interview that she had with police. Again, that informal interview in the home. Um, and then Matthew dies five days later on February 9th. Um, so his autopsy revealed that he also had a wrist fracture that was between two and six weeks old. So all the doctors in this case do agree that the wrist fracture was between two and six weeks old. Um, 
So the doctors who were there at the time Matthew was brought in suggest that the injury was from a recent shaking incident, like we said, as well as slamming the baby's head against a hard surface. Um, so in their medical opinion, the, the injuries were kind of twofold. So there was the shaking of the brain inside the skull, but there was also the slamming of the head onto a surface. Some doctors claimed from 15 feet. Other doctors said no, like two to three feet enough for like an adult human to drop would be enough to cause this this other injury. Um, and this part was a little confusing because I found conflicting evidence on or conflicting information on this. Um, so some places said that there were no bruises on Matthew's body, and then others said that he did have a bruise um, on the back of his head, indicating that there had been a recent injury. But some sources said that there was not, so I'm not sure. Um, but there were no bruises anywhere else along the body, so all sources agree to that. Um, so again, if you're thinking about the force needed so hard that his brain like moves within his skull, there's likely going to be like fingerprints on the baby from grasping him, um, and they didn't find any bruises anywhere. Um, so after Matthew passes away, Luis's charge is changed to murder. So again, Louise Woodward was 18 years old at the time of this incident. Um, she was born on February 28, 1978 in Cheshire, England. Um, her father was a handyman and her mom was an administrator at a local college. So after she graduates from high school, she decides that she wants to spend a year in the United States before starting college. Um, so she got a job through an au pair agency. Um, so basically, if you're not familiar with that, it's Basically, you go to care for children in a different country, typically, um, because it's supposed to be like a cultural experience. Um, so you go and you live with this family and you take care of their children. Um, you are paid, but typically it's a lower rate because your room and board is also covered um, because you're living with this family. Yeah, and it does stand for like as an equal, like in French, because um, like the whole point is that you're supposed to be like a member of the family. Like you're supposed to, you know, not just like, come in for a few hours a day, you're supposed to live with them and just be, you know, part of the family. So Louise started out with a family that was about 30 miles away from Boston. Um, and she asked the agency to move her to somewhere that was closer to the city because she really wanted this cultural experience of United States and the nightlife in Boston. She wanted to, you know, go out and stuff like that. And, you know, an hour train or bus ride into the city every night and back wasn't really feasible. So in November of 1996, she is switched to the Epen family because they are much closer to Boston. Um, so again, this happened in February of 1997. So she'd only been with them for a few months at the time of Matthew's death. Um, so in the Epen family, um, so like I said before, both of the parents were doctors. Um, so you have Debbie and Sunel. Um, hopefully we're pronouncing that correctly. I'm sorry if we're not. We tried to find a pronunciation online and had some difficulty with that, so, um, because he actually is not mentioned a whole lot in most of the things that you find, as, as we'll talk about later, there was a lot of backlash on Debbie, um, but nobody really talks about him, so, but we'll get into that. And two-year-old Brendan and the infant Matthew, um, who again was eight months old at the time that he died. Um, so Louise is 18 and she is caring for this two-year-old and this infant while these two doctors are gone most of the day. Um, so basically she tells the family that she doesn't want a curfew, um, cause again, she's living with them. So they kind of have some say in the rules of how she 
utilizes her time, I guess. Um, so she's like, I want to be able to go out at night. And so at first they're like, okay, no problem. Um, but then they started having some issues with that. So they said that she would go out every single night, like every single night. She's not getting home till after midnight. So she's like coming in 2, 3 a.m., going to bed. Then she doesn't want to get up in the morning to take care of the children because she's 18 years old and she just partied all night. So they started having some issues. So the Epen family reports that the last week of January, they sat Louise down and they had a conversation with her and they're like, look, we really need you to be able to like get this together or we're going to have to go with a different au pair. Like you are staying up all night. You're not getting up with the kids. So Debbie's mom reports later that she basically felt like she had three kids now, that she essentially had a teenager living with her, which she did, even though she was supposed to be responsible for caring for the children. Debbie felt like she now had another child that she was responsible for. So like, look, like we really need you to be able to get this together. Um, and you're going to have a midnight curfew now. Um, so Louise didn't like this. And so she, you know, told her friends that she was upset over this and she's like, I'm an adult. Nobody should be able to tell me what time to go to bed. So she wasn't very happy about that. Which I can kind of see both sides, but also like you're being hired to take care of these kids. So like if you're going to stay out until 2 a.m., you got to be able to get up and take care of the kids. <laughs> like Exactly. That's, that's the thing. Like if you know, it's your life to live on your off time, absolutely. But if I never show up to work on time because I'm out partying till 2 a.m., I'm also going to get fired. So, yeah, you know, and so they're just like, okay, if you want to stay with us, these are going to be the stipulations. And again, it's a little bit different because you are living with them. You know, it's not like, oh, once I'm on my own time, I'm gone. Technically, as part of this program, they want you to be like a part of the family. Um, and Louise just wanted to go party, which I mean, you're 18 in a different country. Like, I get that. I was also wondering, like, was she going out and drinking? Because the drinking age in the U.S. is different than in, yeah, like, England. That's true. So I wonder, like, did you have a fake ID, Louise? I mean... It's okay if you did. I won't tell anybody. I'm not judging for that. I think I think you got bigger, bigger issues <laughs> yeah, to deal yeah, with. Yeah, you got more important things going on. <laughs> um, so, like we said, Louise was ultimately arrested um, for the murder of Matthew based on the interview that they had with her at the home. Um, so because of the fact that she was the only one that was home with Matthew all day, um, again, this was 3.45 in the afternoon. Both the parents had been at work since really early that morning. So she's the only one who's been with him all day. She's the one who found him unresponsive. And then she tells police that she dropped him on the floor and that she um, was maybe a little bit rough with him according to the police. So she is arrested. Um, so she goes to trial and this was quite a trial, um, which a, a lot of the things that I read said it was super interesting for Louise's family and like her friends back home because trials can't be publicized in the UK. Um, and so to them, it was very interesting that they're like watching like this entire court case because that's not allowed there. Um, so it was just like a weird, like cultural thing at the time. Um, but a lot of this trial comes down to the arguments between medical knowledge. Um, so you have like two opposing medical sides who are arguing what happened in this case. So I'm going to go into a little bit of the evidence of the prosecution and what they presented at the trial. And then Courtney's going to get into what the defense presented at the trial. So like I said before, the doctors who treated Matthew said that they believed that Matthew had been shaken and his head slammed against a hard surface within the last few hours before he was found unresponsive. 
Um, so they said that there's no way that this could have happened previously. Like that they said that he would have had some kind of signs or symptoms or something um, showing that he had had this injury if it had happened prior to this day. And again, Luis was the only one who was with him all day. Um, they brought up the interview that Luis had with police saying that she was rough with him, that she dropped him on the floor. So the state requests that the jury be allowed to consider alternative charges such as manslaughter. Um, but the defense argues that since Luis does not acknowledge any wrongdoing, that they should only find her either guilty of murder or find her innocent. Um, because if the state's claim is true that the baby was dropped and hit, then she is guilty of murder, not manslaughter. So they're like, you can't, like, no, we don't want to go with that charge. Um, so a lot of people criticized her defense team and was like, why would you not allow them to do that? Um, but the au pair agency also comes into play with this. So the agency that she worked for was EF au pair. Um, so they basically defended hiring Louise Woodward. They said that she was properly trained and she had her references checked. Um, they said that the family had three months to determine if they felt that she had the ability to care for the children. So they're like, we did nothing wrong here. So obviously on their end, if Louise is charged with murder, then that means that this was an issue with her um, versus if she is charged with manslaughter, then it could be an issue of negligence on their part. Um, and the EF au pair agency actually funded her legal defense. Um, so they're like, yep, we're on board with that. Like, either you're guilty of murder or you didn't do this at all. And at the same time, this same agency was actually being sued in a case where one of their au pairs burned down the house they lived with the infant inside. So. Oh, goodness. <laughs> yes. Um, so they oh, no. had some issues going on. And Luis only got three days of training with this agency before she was sent to live with the family. Um, and again, she's 18 years old. Um, she does report that she had previous experience babysitting, but there is also a difference between watching a child for a couple of hours in an evening and being responsible 40 hours a week for the care of two young children. Again, she's 18 and these kids are two and eight months. Like yeah. that is a lot to take on. Like I'm 25 right now and I could not imagine having children in general yeah, yeah exactly <laughs> any, human. any human to care for <laughs> so basically as the prosecution is presenting their case they're not really going with the side of this was an accident like maybe she got upset and so she accidentally shook the baby and she didn't mean to they are going with the fact that she planned to murder this child and the motive they claim is that she is upset that she had a curfew okay okay like, I get that you're upset you had a curfew, but I think any person with the least bit of, like, of a brain, like, I don't know how to nicely say that, like, is not going to take their anger out on, like, an eight-month-year-old. Like, eight-month-year-old? Is not going to take that out on an eight-month-old. <laughs> exactly. Like, you... Yeah, you might be upset. Um, you're not going to murder a baby because you're upset that you have a curfew. Like, I'm sorry. That's just not normal behavior. My thing as well is that she had previously switched to this family to be closer to Boston. So I don't think it's unreasonable to think that she could switch to another family. You know what I'm saying? Like, why? Yeah. Like, she didn't take her anger out on the previous kid because she was too far from Boston. 
Like, why would she take her anger out on this kid? Like, to me, it's just not logical. Like, if I'm trying to build a case against someone, like, you've got to have something better than that. And part of this might come down to the defense saying that, no, we want this to either be charged as murder or acquittal. Because now the state's like, well, we need to... And and that's kind of (laughs) iffy because they're trying to find a reason to tell you that this person committed murder you know like like typically they would be able to say okay well we're going to convict this person of manslaughter because we think that she got upset she didn't mean to she wasn't trained she didn't know the consequences of what she was doing like she was negligent yeah that is a logical argument inexperience yeah but with the defense team saying nope we don't think that this is what caused it Maybe that had a lot to do with the state being like, well, we have to find some kind of motive to prove murder, so this is what we're going to go with. So, And I think we also have to kind of just, like, reiterate, like, shaken baby syndrome, obviously it's easy to diagnose, but to figure out who did it is extremely hard. Mm -hmm. Because I really think unless you're someone, maybe, like, in this quarantine, who you were the only person who was with the baby and ever saw the baby, or you're caught in the act, I mean, you can't pinpoint, like, at this minute this happened exactly. you know like it can be weeks before symptoms show up or anything like that so I think that's super hard you know unless you're kind of just caught with like a baby in your hand like mm-hmm. shaking it yes. it's very hard to be like this person definitively did it yeah and this is the case that really brought to light what shaken baby syndrome is because prior to 1996 a lot of people hadn't heard of this um so this is kind of like a, a monumental case So, anyway, Courtney, speaking of not being able to tell when shaken baby syndrome occurred, why don't you get into what the defense presented at trial? Okay, I will. Also... Thanks. (laughs) No, no. I'll pass. (laughs) That's okay. Well, I also just kind of want to point out, like, one of the, the notes in our notes is that the prosecution also said it hurt her lifestyle, which included seeing rent at least 20 times. And don't get me wrong. Your girl loves some rent. <laughs> but, like, this is, like, your motive? Like, she can't yeah, see like, rent for the 21st time. She, she wants to go see baby. rent anyway, again. I just, I had and, to bring that up. Um, I listened to the Red Handed podcast about this, and I don't know where they got this information from, so I'm not saying that it's accurate. I'm just saying that it's out there, that this is possibly something that existed. But, um, so they talked about that I guess she was friends with the cast, Mm-hmm. So, like, she went and she was, like, hanging out with them, like, backstage. Yeah. So, I don't know. Just throw that out there. Just a little shaky still ground. Not a, still not a motive for murder. Still a little but. shaky ground. <laughs> so, um, yes, the defense. So, they bring in, you know, like, as we said, it's kind of like medical professional against medical professional. So, they bring in their own little set of medical professionals. So, Dr. Jan Liesma said the skull fracture and blood clot appeared to be there for three weeks and felt more consistent with like an accidental fall um Mm -hmm. you know there was the healing wrist fracture which was also determined to be you know weeks old by both the prosecution and the defense's witnesses um and so x-rays of the skull fracture did did not show swelling which would have indicated a recent injury um they said This means the symptoms did not show up until well after the injury actually occurred. Mm -hmm. And the injury could have even occurred the day before this. 
So as we kind of said, this police interview that happened at the house, it was a lot of he said, she said. Yes. And it really gets into the trial of the he said, she said. Um, so they say, you know, Louise said she popped him on the bathroom floor, but in British English that means to lay or place. Mm-hmm. Um, and that she didn't drop him. And so she testified, you know, she would never hurt Matthew, that she loved kids. She also said the first responder said she had said a lot of he said, she said. Again, it's a big he said, she said. <laughs> yeah. Because so we first... don't have a tape of an interview to say, oh, well, you said this. It's literally just them saying, oh, you said this. And she's like, no, I didn't. Like, even with the whole popped thing in the documentary, the police officers are interviewed and they're like, no, she did not say popped. She said dropped. You didn't record it. Like, you took some notes, you know. It, we don't, we don't, okay. We don't need to get into memory, but, like, memory is not like factual or accurate um so like if you hear her say like oh i popped him on the floor in our brain we translate that to oh you meant dropped and you write down dropped and now in your head you think she said dropped when really she said popped possibly we don't know but that's something that could have happened i'm also thinking she had probably has a british accent so she could have said yeah. popped and it maybe sounded like dropped you know like absolutely there's that also so and she's also 18 years old in a different country and the police are interviewing you at the home where you just found this baby unresponsive. Like, if you really didn't do anything to the baby, you don't understand that you're a suspect in his assault and then eventual murder. So you're just like, this is what happened today. And like, you're, you're not. And again, she didn't have the chance to consult with a lawyer because she wasn't under arrest. She had not been read Miranda rights. Like, she wasn't being interviewed officially as a suspect. Anyway. So, yeah, that first responder said that she had said she was rough with Matthew. She is saying he must have misunderstood her. Mm -hmm. Um, She said, you know, I could have been gentler, but I wasn't rough. And also on the stand, she did show the motions that she used, and they they were not motions that would have led to the type of injuries that he had sustained. And I'm just thinking of this, like, if you really didn't do it, and you are young and inexperienced, and you're like, oh, God, did I cause this when I tried to wake him up? Like, that yeah. was what what my mind went to, that maybe she's like, oh, I found him unresponsive, and, like, they're saying that he has signs of being shaken. Like, well, yeah, I guess I shook him when I, like, picked him up and was like, he's not breathing, not understanding that they're saying, no, him not breathing is because you shook him earlier. Like, maybe she doesn't understand that, and so she's like, I don't know, maybe I, I did shake him. Then. And she, that's kind of what I thought. That might not be what she was thinking, but that's what my brain went to. And I mean, she probably was in shock, too. You just found the baby unresponsive, you know. Exactly. So, um, she said she did shake him gently to try and wake him up. She was kind of being quicker than normal, but not necessarily rough. She said, I don't believe I was rough with him. I could have maybe done a few things better, but I don't think I did anything that would have led to these injuries. Um, And, you know, again, this police interview occurred at the home. She had not been Rested, Mirandized, which kind of makes me wonder if her interview should have even been admissible in court in general. But uh, yeah, I don't think so, but I mean, yeah. So I guess it was. <laughs> yeah, basically, bunch of he said, she said, like I've said probably for the sixth time, guys. I'm sorry. Um, Courtney's going to take a sip of margarita every time she says he said, she said. <laughs> Until then, it's going to be me talking at the end. So that's how you're talking in the beginning. <laughs> That's how you're talking during the whole thing, Courtney. Okay. <laughs> so, 
the defense did try to get her trial moved to a different state because there was so much media coverage at the time. And Massachusetts mm-hmm. is not a big state. You know, no. it's everybody knows everything. Like, not necessarily like small town, but if there's a big news in Boston, you're going to hear it everywhere. Yeah. Um, so they did want to try and move it, trying to kind of like eliminate the juror prejudice, but that didn't happen. Um, so additional experts also came in, argued the brain injuries had happened weeks earlier. And symptoms had just began on that February 4th. And again, there's no bruises on the body. Um, Louise did pass a polygraph test, which we all know isn't exactly the most reliable. People can fail them when they're telling the truth and pass them when they're telling a lie. This is also a 19-year-old girl. And kind of before, I mean, she's from England and you said they can't even publicize publicize trials there. So would she even know, like, how... To try and, you know, pass this over. Like, to me, if you're you're trying to say, like, she fooled it, you know, that you're kind of saying almost that she's like a psychopath and feels no remorse about anything. So, yeah, because polygraph tests aren't reliable. And a lot of the times they're not reliable because someone is actively trying to alter the results. Yeah. You know, it's it's... Obviously, there are times where it's just completely incorrect because of whatever your normal bodily functioning is, but a lot of the time, like, you practice to be able to do this. Like, you're consciously, like, okay, I know, like, you know, people who are into true crime, you know what they measure, you know how to, so, but again, would this 19-year-old know how to do these things? This 19-year-old who's never been in any kind of legal trouble before, you know, it's not like she's been arrested as a teenager and all, like, this is her first interaction with the law at all, would she know how to pass a polygraph test or how to fool one? I don't know. Who knows? Um, and they did say she smiled and chuckled at a few answers, which, again, this can go either way. I know, personally, one Mm -hmm. of my defense mechanisms when I'm about to cry is to laugh. Um, so it Mm -hmm. could be that, that she was trying not to cry in front of strangers, but, I mean, who knows? This isn't definitive either way. And me personally, um, when I saw, because they do show it in the documentary, um, it's, it's more of like a, like, she's like incredulous. Like, no, of course not. Like, 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 how could you ever think that? Like, what are you talking about? Exactly. Like it was a poor reaction on her part, but that was just kind of how I interpreted it because it was like when they said, you know, did you kill Matthew? And she's like, no, like, like she kind of laughs. Like, it's like, that's ridiculous that you would even ask that question. So Again, not a, not a great look for you and not a great response, but I can see how that would be a, a typical teenage response when asked that kind of question. And we also go so. into, are we comparing it to how British people are interviewed or how Americans are interviewed? Is that yeah. kind of normal responses, you know, culturally? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Goes into a lot. So, on October 30th, after 30 hours of deliberation, the jury does find her guilty of second-degree murder. She is sentenced to life in prison with possibility of parole after 15 years. So, the jury said they did give more weight to the testimony of the doctors who were actually present at the time Matthew was brought to the hospital. Um, And they didn't believe the doctors that said the injury occurred weeks before. Um, They said this doesn't mysteriously happen and go undetected, but... I mean, now we know it can since we know more about shaken baby syndrome. Mm-hmm. So November 7th, defense does 
appeal. So they asked for either the verdict set aside and the case dismissed. They asked for the verdict set aside in a new trial or the charge to be reduced to manslaughter. So the judge did reduce the sentence to involuntary manslaughter and reduced the sentence to time served. So she was freed from jail after serving 279 days. And this was the first legal decision ever released on the internet. Fun fact. Which I thought was super interesting. So Judge Hiller Zobel said he believed that she acted out of confusion, inexperience, frustration, immaturity, and some anger, but not malice in the legal sense. So judges judges in every state do have the authority to reduce murder charges to manslaughter, but it is very rare. Yeah. So on June 16th, 1998, the Massachusetts Supreme Judicial Court upheld Louise's conviction of, of involuntary manslaughter and said she is able to return to England. So the Epen family did sue for wrongful death and settled out of court. So to go back to the judge reducing her charge and her sentence, um, I just found that super interesting because, like, that's why we have a jury. Like, basically, he's like, the jury didn't do a good enough job. I'm just going to override it and do it myself. Um, which, you know, again, yeah. we did see that this rarely happens. So, I don't know. I just kind of had conflicting thoughts on that of, like, is that a good thing or not? Like, because I, I could be a good thing in cases where you think there's just, like, a, you know, miscarriage of justice. But that's according to what one person thinks. You know, like, this one judge thought this was a miscarriage of justice. So, he felt the need to override it. And I can see it in this case because... The defense was like, all right, it's either murder or innocent. Yeah. And so I can see the judge being like, look, I think if we go through another trial and we allow manslaughter, mm-hmm. we're going to get that result. And to save the taxpayer dollars, let's go That's ahead and point. do that. I mean, I don't think, I mean, it is very rare that it happens. So mm-hmm. I think it's kind of like how the president can pardon people, you know, like, yeah. it can be a little iffy, but if it's done rarely, like sometimes it can be good. It's kind of how I view it. Not to get into my... Well, I'm sure we'll get into our personal opinions of this case in a minute. But that was just something that I was like, hmm, I don't know how I feel about that as a as a whole. You know, like, obviously, yeah. if you look at individual cases, but you're like, hmm, is that really, like, a good... But, yeah, that, that makes sense. Um, and, you know, there were people who were furious on both sides. So you had the people who were furious that she was even arrested to begin with and that she was in jail for 279 days. And then you had the people who were appalled that her sentence got reduced and that she got out after only 279 days. Like this was like a huge... And I think that might go into it also because could you find a jury anywhere who could be unbiased about this case? You know, That's a good point. Yeah. Um, I can see it in this case. I think it's definitely a case by case thing. You know, like, I think if the defense hadn't been, like, it's this or that, like, no other options. Yeah. Maybe. But. And I know we talked about this earlier, but I wonder how much of that was really the legal team thinking it was the best maneuver and how much of it was pressure from the au pair agency who was funding the legal team who was like, oh, look. Yeah. Because they, again, they were already in a lawsuit for one of their au pairs that had burned down a house with an infant in it. Um, so they're like, oh, we really need you to, like, say this was murder because that actually looks better on us because manslaughter shows that we were negligent in training or selecting or whatever versus murder is like, well, she was just rotten to begin with. Nothing we could have done about that. So, yeah, because I mean, like, as we said, the motive in this case is a little shady, light. Yeah. 
not logical. I don't know. Yes. Um, so they're probably like, well, there's no way a jury can be like, based on this motive and this like conflicting evidence, which, mm-hmm. you know, backfired. Yeah. So there was some aftermath of this trial. Um, mm-hmm. So it did invoke a lot of criticism of the au pair system. Um, mm-hmm. So, you know, kind of like we said, they bring the young foreigners into America and it's supposed to be like a culture exchange and a like a nanny employment service. Um, and au pairs are generally cheaper than professional childcare. So this case did cause stricter rules to be placed in September 1997 by the agency. So those who care for children under two must have at least 200 documented hours of childcare experience. And it also limited the hours au pairs can work to 10 hours a day and 45 hours a week, which makes me wonder, like, what were some of these girls or guys? I don't know if there's any guys in the system. How much were they working? You know, how much was Louise working? Was it really her out partying every night or was it, you know, their doctors? Like, Yeah, because that's the thing. Like, was she staying out till 2 a.m. because she didn't get off work till 10? I mean, like, and we don't know. We're We're not saying that that's what happened but like Courtney said if you bring up the fact that these um new rules were put into place you're like hmm okay so how were people utilizing this before these rules were put into place yes a lot of questions um and also the mother of Matthew Debbie was criticized a lot by the public um this is kind of the 90s, but this still does occur today, where people are like, why are you leaving your children with a young and experienced nanny instead of being home with them? She received a lot of hate mail from the trial and saying, like, if you would have stayed home, like, your baby would still be alive. Like, none of this would have happened. It's like, it's not fair to tell a woman who went through so much school to be a doctor and has this career and also wants children, which is 100% okay, that she like she could have prevented this like that's harsh yes like that it's if this is what happened it's not your fault that someone that you brought in to care for your child harmed your child like you you didn't cause this to happen like that's there's no reason for you to receive the hate for that and like you said like she received these hate letters in the mail like this was the 90s like right now everybody knows you can hop on a keyboard and you can talk shit to somebody across the world as much as you want and everyone does it and it's not okay in any way but that's a lot easier than taking the time to like hand write a letter and pay for a like, stamp pay for postage <laughs> and, yeah like like you put a lot of effort into feeling the need to tell this woman that she is a bad mother like shame on you like yeah what what are you doing so, after this, Debbie and Sunel Epen founded the Maddie Epen Foundation a year after his death um, that's dedicated to education and prevention of shaken baby syndrome, which I think is mm-hmm. great. You know, we talked about today, it's talked about a lot, but back then it wasn't as much. Um, yeah. In 2007, Debbie did say, you know, this isn't about Louise. I don't care about her anymore. This is just about Matthew and his life and what I want to do to prevent this from happening to other children and the um debbie's mom so matthew's grandma in the documentary did say that she still holds on to the fact that like there was a purpose for matthew's life however short um that hopefully that they can use this as an education and a learning opportunity for others um so i just thought that was neat that she was able to kind of look at it from that perspective of even though he was only here for such a short time she's trying to find meaning in that life um, and the Evans did go on to have two more children as well. Yeah. 
So Louise's lawyer, Elaine Sharp, um, said she never had any doubt about Louise's innocence, which kind of sounds like something your lawyer has to say, <laughs> but I'm just kidding. But <laughs> go ahead. Oh, I have things to say. No, okay. I want you to go ahead and tell this part, but then I have things to so say. So she said Louise was very quiet and mild. Um, she seemed kind of childish and not very well informed of the world. So speaking of this lawyer, so I only found this on one source. Mm-hmm. So just take that for what it's worth. Um, I don't want to act like this is like fact that this happened, but I did read some information that said that, so after Luis was released from jail, she didn't really have anywhere to live in Boston um, before she was like released to go back home to England. So she actually lived with Elaine and apparently it was like super rough and she's like, you know, basically said some of the same things that Debbie had said, that it's like, it's like having a teenage child living with me. Um, And supposedly, Elaine was pulled over one night for drunk driving. um, And like, extreme, like she was like, fully in the wrong lane on like a four lane highway. Like, not, not just like swerved a little bit, like she's completely way on the wrong fucking side. So, um, and supposedly, again, when she was pulled over and she was talking to the police, she said, I just defended this girl who I know is guilty and I can't do anything about it. Oh, gosh. <laughs> so, again, this is one source, so we don't know if this happened. Um, if she's so drunk that she doesn't even know what side of the road she's supposed to be on, is she just saying stuff to let, like, is she trying to get herself out of trouble? Like, she's gonna get sympathy? Like, just throwing whatever comes out there. Did it even happen at all? I don't know. But I just thought that was interesting that I'm like, hmm, okay. Is she like, clearly I have to do this. Look, I just defended this girl who's guilty. You know, like. Yes. But again, just want to point out there, this was one source. So. So, the death penalty was up for vote in Massachusetts shortly after. Um, It did not pass because one judge who was previously pro-capital punishment, said the Woodward case showed him you can't always be sure you executed the right person. Mm -hmm. So this case, I mean, has had a lot of effects, and it's kind of the reason Massachusetts doesn't have capital punishment. So a few years later, CBS did release a story with new doctors claiming Matthew was strangled and not shaken, based on marks on his neck. Um, Doctors who were present said the marks were made during life-saving efforts at the hospital, which I'm kind of wondering how that is also like strangle marks like that's why like everyone else um like we we found that 70 pediatricians signed a petition for this to be removed um from cbs and like signed a petition saying like we're saying that this is false that this didn't really happen um because again they they don't really look like the same marks yeah like and this is years after the case by people who were never around this baby like they were just reviewing his medical records so, meh. But I just thought that was an interesting, like, pop culture kind of continuing on of the case that, like, then this happened, and then this happened, and this caused this public outcry, so. Yeah, and then years later, even more years later, yep. <laughs> Dr. Patrick, <laughs> Dr. Patrick. thought of, like, the Spongebob. <laughs> 40 years later. <laughs> oh, boy. So, I'm gonna leave that in. <laughs> <laughs> so, Dr. Patrick Barnes, and he was a key witness in the prosecution's side of the case, mm-hmm. said he would not provide the same testimony today. And with the new knowledge, um, he would state Matthew's injuries were inconclusive. They weren't really clearly shaken baby syndrome. 
um, like as he had testified in the trial, that it might be more inconclusive. Um, and this just kind of goes into the whole shaken baby syndrome is a very complex thing. Um, but shaken baby syndrome as a whole has come under a lot of scrutiny recently. Um, so a lot of studies have shown that minor injuries accidents, diseases, and even genetic conditions can cause the same symptoms of that triad that we discussed earlier. Um, because previously, like we said, that triad, anytime those three symptoms, the retinal hemorrhaging, brain swelling, and brain bleeding were present, it was like, oh, you checked all the boxes. This is automatically shaken baby for sure. Um, so the new studies are like, oh, actually, there's a lot of things that can cause these in an infant that we didn't realize was a thing before. Um, and so the American Academy of Pediatrics recommended in 2009 that doctors stop using this term altogether um, because there are so many other things that could cause it that they're like, you just really shouldn't even use this because we don't know. Like, there's no way to know yeah. for sure. Um, and a 2015 investigation by the Washington Post found that at least 16 shaken baby syndrome murder convictions had been overturned um, because, again, the once later reviewed, the evidence was inconclusive that they're like, well, we can't prove now that this was even shaken baby syndrome. Um, and then like we talked about earlier, more research has shown that even in the case where a baby was shaken, the symptoms can show up hours or days later. Um, so that's one of the, the big key pieces of evidence in this case was, okay, well, maybe he was shaken, but we don't know when. And if we don't know when, then we can't say for sure that it was Louise. Um, and I thought this was interesting, too, that it came up in the trial that one of the defense's witnesses had previously written a paper on shaken baby syndrome, like, in a, in a peer-reviewed journal a few years prior, where he talked about the triad and talked about injuries of shaken baby syndrome often looked like healing injuries, which, again, in his testimony, he claimed that this was a healing injury. Um, so the prosecution brought this up in the trial, and he's like, this was years ago, like, evidence and or, or research and science changes like I wrote this before I did more research on it and this is what I know now yeah and then like Courtney said Dr. Patrick Barnes who is the key witness for the prosecution now several years later is like oh I've now read this new research and I'm like hmm what I said may not have been right and it kind of goes back to what I said earlier where unless you are the only person who's been around the baby mm -hmm. for the whole time or you are caught in the act, yeah. I think it is so hard to determine what happens. And, you know, I know the Mayo Clinic website said that there's no way shaken baby syndrome can be accidental. Like, to get the level of that, it can't be an accident. But it's also just like, I mean, if you drop an eight-month-year-old by accident, like... <laughs> you said it again. <laughs> if you accidentally drop an eight-month-old, you know... Is that necessarily child abuse if it's an accident? But you're going to have the same mm -hmm. things as shaken baby syndrome. Like, I think it's a lot deeper than people mm -hmm. think. Yeah. You know? Like, obviously it's horrible. And if you were abusing a baby, I hope you rot in prison yes. for the rest of your life. I don't want to come off saying, like, not. But, like, in this case with Louise, I really don't know mm -hmm. what happened. And there's no way to say that it was her or that it wasn't Debbie or Sunel or anyone else that could have been in contact with that baby. Like, And that was another thing that the defense brought up is there is a two-year-old child. Did the two-year-old push the baby off the high chair? Did the two-year-old, you know, try to pick up the baby and drop the baby? Like, there was a lot of different, yeah. you know... I think that was one of my first questions to you when we were researching. I was yep. like, is there another child in the home that yeah. could have, you know, by accident, you know, the baby's like in a little 
rocker thing. Yeah. I don't know. Whatever babies sit in. I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> this is why I don't have children. You know, whatever babies sit in, like, what if the two-year-old's just kind of walking and pushes it or bumps into it or falls into it? You know, so many things can happen. Yes. Because that's the thing, like, if it is shaken baby syndrome, there's no way to know who harmed the baby in what capacity, you know, is, like you said, did you drop him on the floor? Like, did you, like, toss him on the floor? Or did you, like, slip and fell and drop? Like, a lot of people accidentally drop their babies. Like, it happens, especially as a young new mom or a young inexperienced nanny. Like, accidents happen. So, if you're looking at trying to prove murder, was this an accident? Or was this baby physically shaken? Or, as we know now, was the baby not harmed at all? Like, did the baby have some kind of genetic condition that's difficult to trace that has these same, like, brain-swelling symptoms? Like, there's just so much that we don't know now. Um, and the doctor that I previously mentioned that coined the term shaken baby syndrome um, in the 70s and who established the triad recommends um, appeals for all of those who have been convicted of shaken baby syndrome in light of the new research. So he is even, like, no, like not saying, oh, well, it's not a thing at all, but he's saying everyone who has been convicted of this, their case should be... Reviewed. Yes. Yes. Which is very interesting because in our hometown, there was a very recent case of this happening. Um, I think the person settled and took a plea deal. I don't know. I didn't look it up. But, I mean, people are still getting convicted of this. I don't know. What exactly? I mean, it, there's a lot of he said, she said. Like I said, you can't pinpoint an exact this time. And that was a big thing, I think, that came to light in this trial as well. Because before, like, it logically makes sense that if a baby has a brain injury that you're going to know it immediately. But that's not always, like, medically accurate. Like, if, if you just think, like, oh, yeah, this baby just had his skull slammed into the ground, you're going to know it immediately. Maybe not. I mean... If you think about brain injuries in adults, like, a lot of the things are, like, confusion. Are you going to know if a baby's confused? No. Oh, vomiting. Babies vomit all the time. Um, Yeah. Sleeping a lot. Crying. You can just have a baby who has, like, colic and just cries a lot And like I said before, like, Louise mentioned that Matthew had been fussy previous, like, that he had been fussy all day, which the prosecution used as, oh, hey, Louise was super frustrated because he'd been crying, but... Was he crying because he was previously injured? Like, there's just so many things in an infant that it's hard to detect a brain injury immediately. And so it's not like a given that, oh, well, this definitely happened recently. So, yeah. And I mean, and it's not saying either if this happened previously, it wasn't Louise, you know, that it wasn't her on a previous day who did this. You know, it's very, to me, I have no idea. I don't know what happened to this baby if it wasn't Louise and it's like clear abuse it makes me sad that somebody is not getting Mm -hmm. justice for this like what i personally lean towards is that it was probably an accident on someone's behalf um the only thing that makes me hesitant of that is the healing wrist fracture yeah um but again these are just two injuries so we don't have a lot of bruises we don't have multiple like did those occur at the same time? Like, did he accidentally fall? Was he pushed off of something or fell off of something by the younger child or he was accidentally dropped? You know, say you're walking along holding the baby and you drop him and both of those injuries occur at once. And, yeah. you know, so... I, don't I know. also want to bring up 
again, how fragile babies are. Like, um, mm-hmm. our friend Tiffany, when she gave birth because her baby was so big, it broke her the baby's mm-hmm. collarbone like it yeah. and that was nothing anyone did it was just it happened yeah. um and so i mean that can happen babies bones i've seen infant bones like in person mm-hmm. and they seriously are just like the tiniest most fragile things that i've ever seen so i mean it is not that hard to break a wrist <laughs> can you clarify where and why you've seen infant bones so people don't think you're a weirdo <laughs> cuz that statement alone is just <laughs> A little interesting. Yeah, okay. Let me let me clarify, guys, about why I've seen baby bones. Um, I did go to the University of Tennessee, Knoxville, where we do have the anthropological research facility or the body farm. I think I mentioned it before. Um, so I did volunteer, and part of what they do is they study decomp in different scenarios. And so I would work, like, once the bodies had decomposed and came out of the facility I would I would work you know cleaning the bones and prepping them to go to be put in the collection for further studies um and so we did have a few babies who were Mm -hmm. donated um to help research with that so just so you guys know that I'm not digging up babies or anything I'm just saying like for a normal person for you just be like well I've seen baby bones and no you're 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 right you're a hundred percent right maybe we should give a little backstory there yeah just so you guys know I'm not crazy um if you want a future episode about the body farm let us know I have a lot of you know inside knowledge yes now that we've ranted and let you thoroughly know our thoughts and opinions um just to finish um louise woodward is married now to her husband anthony elks and in 2014 she did give birth um to a baby i wish i would have put like gender or something but she did give birth um and has a child of her own now and she still maintains her innocence and doing this research i did find quite a few paparazzi photos of her with her child so that made me uncomfortable Mm -hmm. i didn't like that but like she talks about in the in the documentary, you know, she's like, I do maintain my innocence, but remember, she is still convicted of manslaughter. Like That's the thing is, I'm like, if you were going to say you did it, why not do it now? I mean, they're not going to take you back to trial, you yeah. know. But again, she's maintained her innocence this whole time. I don't know. I mean, I don't, I truly don't think that she maliciously did this. Um, if it was something that happened because of her, I think it was probably an accident because she was a young, experience, inexperienced nanny but maybe it wasn't her at all i don't know i mean we'll never know probably but though that is the case it is crazy and it has so many layers and so many repercussions into different things um yep but a super interesting um case to research like we said with all of the different aspects of it yeah thank you so much for telling us about this because I mean, it was very interesting to research, and I'm really excited we told this story. Yeah, and so let us know um, what you guys think about this case. Like, what, what are your thoughts? Um, but to quickly wrap up, because this episode has been longer than we intended, so Courtney, what is your perk of the week? My perk of the week has been, um, you know, with restaurants and stuff not being able to be open, they did put a mandate where you can get to go alcohol. <laughs> Hence... The margarita the size of a bathroom trash can. (laughs) And, (laughs) I mean, it's just been really nice um, because it is hard. You know, I was talking with my parents about this the other day. It's hard not having margaritas. (laughs) Well, I was talking about my parents the other day, how we really don't think about 
until this time how much we go out to restaurants or how much we go out places to like see people and all that and so it has been hard you know that complete cut off of like social interaction with strangers a little nice sometimes but mostly (laughs) been hard so but it is nice like when I get my to-go food that I can also get me a good margarita that's (laughs) amazing and that is my perk, is this margarita and all the cocktails I've been making lately. So. Um, Andrew also got a margarita last night. Um, we went to this taco place that's delicious. But he got a to-go margarita, and they put it in, like, a to-go coffee cup. <laughs> so, oh, my gosh. Like, I just thought it was so funny. But um, That is funny. But, Jacqueline, what is your perk of the week? Um, so, my perk of the week. So, like I mentioned before, my birthday was this past week. Um, and so Andrew made me like the sweetest, most thoughtful present. Um, and he's been telling me for weeks, like not to check the mail because he had things coming for my birthday and he had to put it together. And I was like, what is this man doing? Because this man's never made anything in his entire life. So I'm super (laughs) intrigued. But, um, so we, we love to travel and We've been to several national parks over the last few years, and our goal is to one day go to all of the national parks. So as we plan our future vacations, we try to plan it around that. Um, So he made me a scrapbook of all of our pictures from all the national parks, and he got like the different stickers with like all the logos on them and like put those in the scrapbook. And then he got this, this like map of the United States where you can like scratch off each of them. So they have like all the national parks on them, and you can like scratch off each one as you go to it. So... We got to scratch off all the ones that we've been to and see all the ones that we have left to go to. Um, But yeah, so it was just super sweet and thoughtful. So that was my perk of the week. Yeah, further confirming, you're the Leslie Nope to my Ann Perkins. So So much so. Yeah. Which I'm going to do two perk of the week this week. So I was going to say we should save it. (laughs) Oh. No, you can say it. You can say it. Okay. Our... Our uh, combined, our joint, our, our joint perk of the, of the week. week. Um, last night we kind of sort of watched it together because I watched like two minutes of it and I was like, "Courtney, this is the best thing ever." And Courtney's like, "I gotta watch it now." <laughs> so we watched the um, the Parks and Rec like quarantine COVID special that they did to raise money for Feeding America, which I saw they raised like three million dollars. Yeah, I, I saw that. Um, but it was fabulous and Courtney and I both cried through the entire thing. Kevin sent a snap of me to people just crying because yep I don't know it was so good and at this point this episode's coming out probably a month after that was released so if you haven't watched it this is your fault for me spoiling it. (laughs) They did 5,000 candles in the wind at the end and I just bawled my eyes out like (laughs) like I texted Courtney and I was like oh my god this is like each time I cried I was like oh my and then I was like Courtney, I'm losing it. You're going to know when it happens. <laughs> and so then Courtney texted me. She's like, oh my God, I'm balling. Yeah, <laughs> Kevin was like, I saw on Facebook that they did this. And he, he was like, she's going to cry. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, Andrew did not watch it. So I was telling him about it today because he's like, why did you cry? And so I'm like explaining it. And he's just looking at me like, I don't even understand you right now. <laughs> but... That's why we have each other. Because our men don't exactly. understand us. <laughs> exactly. And Courtney is the and to my Leslie. Yes. For sure. So... Um, if you want to tell us who you are in Parks and Rec, DM us at, on Instagram at Caffeinated Crimes Pod. Email us at CaffeinatedCrimesPod at gmail.com. You know, if you want to be so generous as to donate to us, you can go to Patreon.com slash Caffeinated Crimes. And yeah, 
tell us who you are in Parks and Rec. Yes, we would love to know. Yeah, so um, go have a cup of coffee. And don't commit a crime. <laughs>